there are moments in worship for me, I don't know if you connect with this, moments in worship for me that it's just not the here and now. There's sometimes where we're connected to the future, there's sometimes we're connected to the past, and we're really in the bigger timeline of eternity, just one little small drop in that, in that, uh, that context. And I think it's important to appreciate where we've been from and appreciate where we're going. There's sometimes I believe that we have this delineation in our lives of uh, you know, right now and future eternity. But as you read the scripture, the two are very tied together, that there's a fusion that's, that comes together, and I, as I think that you'll see today, that how we live our lives today has a direct effect on what happens in the future. Now, some of you may say in your minds, gosh, are you talking about we need to earn our way to heaven? Never. But what we do and how we live, not only uh, in, in this day and age and what you do in the next 12 hours or so, but in your lifetime, it matters. I'm going to do something that I've never done in 36 years of ministry today. It's an interpretive dance. No, I'm just kidding. I'm not going <laughs> to... No, I'm playing. <laughs> You'll be thankful. I'm joking. Um, no, I, I'm going to do something that I, I have, have never done, and then it really hit me that this needs to be done more often. I'm going to circle back around and cover a topic that we covered a few years ago. You know, we're so information-driven in our culture that we just new information, new information, and while we're trying to digest the information that we just heard, we're hearing new information. And really, it's not about information, it's about reality when, we're, when we look into the Word of God. It's a plumb line. It is a plumb line that should impact and affect our lives. If it were to, for me, this topic that we're going to t- speak on, because in any given church, usually we're going to, you know, there's going to be a sermon once a year, a series about giving. There'll be another series about our mission and our vision, etc. If it were me, I would cover this topic every single year. And the reason I would cover this topic every single year is that we're going to speak about what's called the Bema Seat of Christ. And the reason that I would speak about it every single year is because there is a stunning a surprise when I speak to other Christians that have no or little idea of what the Bema Seat of Christ is. And that's not a judgment. It's just a reality. And because of that, whether it's here in the United States or globally, to places I've, I've visited, and when you begin to talk about the Bema Seat there, you can see the kind of the question mark come over the face like, what is that? It's so important to the Christian faith that I think by the end of our collection here in six, seven, eight weeks, I think you may be surprised at how often Paul refers to this reality in the future. And there's a purpose that he speaks about it so frequently is, number one, it's a reality. We, are, we will be at the Bema Seat of Christ as believers. But the second is that it impacts our life now. So let me put it in, let me begin by breaking it down to simple terms because Jesus did it all the time. You know, he's talking about eternal things and things that are profound, but like he's going to say, you know about fish and you know about plants and seeds, etc., because uh, the people in that day understood that. So let me give it to you this way. 
So we went to California, as, as Rob uh, mentioned earlier, uh, this past week, had an amazing time. It, God, uh, I prayed for some specific connections, and God did more than, than we could have expected. But th- my wife went with me, and I love bringing my wife because I like to, for her to be uh, up on what's going on, and I hate to come back from a trip and like, oh, it was amazing, and you, and you missed this conversation, blah, blah, blah. And it's just, I, we just, I, we don't like that. And so, but another reason that I bring her, she is a master preparer of travel. So when you're on, you know, and I'm the opposite. I'm like, ah, dang it, forgot my socks. Um, I literally went on a trip and I forgot my shirts. And like, you know, that was going to be like Elvis week, you know, but... um, so I, I, you can ask my wife, hey, have you got fingernail clippers? Yeah, right here. I mean, it's like A to Z. I, sometimes I just test her. Hey, you got a Phillips screwdriver? Just happen to have one, right? You know, she's got it all. So one of those preparation levels is uh, the weather. So for me, I'm thinking I'm going to Southern California, not Northern, Southern California. Hey, short sleeve shirts, you know, all that jazz. She's being the preparer. She studies the destination and says, hey, Steve, well, at the last minute, you know, it's going to get a little chilly at night, you know, down in the 50s. I'm like, really? So, you know, it was a little hard for me to believe that. But at the last minute, I grabbed the, the, the jacket, you know, the little jacket, and man, am I glad I did. Because we went one night on top of this mountain that overlooked, it was just stunning, you know, the view and all that. But I've got to tell you, man, I could have used two jackets. It was that cold. Here's my point. Because I knew about the destination, it directly impacted my preparation. I'm going to say it again. Because I knew about the destination, it directly impacted my preparation. I'm going out of the country here in a few, in a few weeks. It's making me a little nervous because I can't get the details I'm asking for. Once we land, we travel somewhere. It's in Latin America. We travel somewhere for three hours. Okay, I've been to Latin America a lot. I have stayed in nice hotels, and I've stayed in places that have no windows. One place in El Salvador was in the jungle with no windows. I came back with 200 mosquito bites and dengue fever. So it makes, I would have brought a mosquito net had I known that they didn't have any windows. So when I'm asking this because I don't know what the destination is, and they, they, somewhere in the conversation, the word camp came out. Okay, if you know me well, I, when at the mention of certain things like camp, my inside, I'm like, ah, camp. I don't understand camp. I don't understand people that like to camp. I'm like, aren't we past that in history where they had to camp? Like, that's why they have a Marriott. You know, have you heard of a Marriott? Why are we going back in time? Let's get a wagon, shall we, and come to church. As a leader... I am accountable. The Bible says I am more accountable as a leader. Scary. I'm accountable to allow you to know, to to guide you to know about the destination that is in front of us because I believe that we will prepare differently, behave differently, spin differently, watch differently, listen differently, walk differently if we know that destination. Every human being on the planet will will have a destination after they take their last breath. 
Now, that may be a statement that you're like, you know, I just don't want to think about it. I don't believe it. I don't like it. Hey, that's your business. This is America. You can choose to believe whatever you want to believe. But I will say that for me, the Bible is a plumb line. And over history, and, and, and especially in this day and age, there is an attempt to continually move that plumb line, but you cannot move a plumb line. And for that reason, we, are, we must engage with the reality of the plumb line. I can't say, well, I don't like chilly weather. I'm going to California. Therefore, I am going to believe different. It doesn't matter. It is going to be chilly at night regardless of I like it, believe it, whatnot. You understand? And so when we look at the reality of these destinations, this, these destinations are immovable. They're unchangeable. And we know that because I'm about to say something profound for those of you that are not familiar with the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is not a prediction. Many people see it as such, a book of prophecy, a book of predictive futurism. It's not. Because the writer of the book, the apostle John, wrote in past tense. Someone who's predicting the future does not write in past tense. Someone who sees something and, says, and then comes back and says, here's what I saw. In other words, John profoundly was transported into the future, and then he came back, and that's why he was using past tense language. This is not Jesus saying, hey, here's what's going to happen in the future, like he did when he was here on earth. John says, here's what I saw. And because he said, this is what I saw, it is a reality, it's as if I were transported into next Friday and I said, I saw the stock market at 23,000 or whatever, and then I came back. I'm not predicting that it will be 23,000. I, I saw that it was, and then I came back, and I'm just reporting what, what the future already is. And I know that's mind-blowing. I understand that that is mind-blowing. But it comes from a compassionate God. That's where it comes from. To give us a deep sense of what the future will look like. If you were God or I were God and you really love people, you would say, let me tell you, bring a jacket. Bring mosquito netting. You're not going to just make people guess. There was a street, I went down the steepest street I've ever gone in my entire life. I've been in the Rockies. I grew up in Virginia. I'm, I'm familiar with mountains. Dude, there was this one street that we, we were cresting, and you could not see what came below. It literally, like, you were like, here we go, hope there's something there, and then you, it wasn't until about like that. I mean, I don't know, you know, degrees, whatever that degree is for you mathematicians, it was about like that. You see, God doesn't want us to live our life like, oh, I wonder, like that. That would not be compassion. That would not be the God we know of the scriptures. We begin with a very hard reality this morning in the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, in chapter 20. It says, a destination for those who don't know Christ, that's very, um, it's a very hard reality. John writes in uh, Revelation chapter 20, beginning of verse 11. I'll take 
one more note at the, the past tense. He said, then I saw, well, I'm going to see, I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence, God. And there was no place for them. So it's much, much like the Garden of Eden where Adam tried to hide and it's like, oh, come on. You know, it's God. And John says again, past tense, and I saw the dead, great and small, rich and poor, famous, infamous, and unknown, standing before the throne, and some books were opened. Another book was open, other than these books, another book was open, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the first set of books that John refers to. If anyone's name was not referred to or written in the second book, the book of life, he or she was thrown into the lake of fire. You say, I don't like that. Neither do I. I have learned that whether I like something or not, I can't move the plumb line. Whether I agree with something or not, I can't move the plumb line. John is seeing a reality here that is heavy, is it not? In fact, let me say it this way, it doesn't get any heavier. So I recognize that. Like, man, you're starting out heavy. I, I understand that. So if I'm you and I don't know much about the Bible, I'm like, wow, man, how do you get, do you, do you have to attend church a lot to get in the book of life? Do you have to, uh, you know, exercise the golden rule? Do you have to reach some level of spiritual dimension like a nirvana or something? Do you have to live life like uh, come back in many lives until you get it right? Do you have to be religious? Do you have to become a pastor? I've been in parts of the world where they crawl on their knees painfully for a long distance in order to hopefully achieve because they can't see over the crest of the road and they're so fearful. You see, the great news in context of this heaviness is that not only that God has made a way, but God gives us confidence, confidence that our names can be written in the book of life, that's, that's the first good news. But the second great news is you can't do any great work or good work or earn your way into the book of life. Because if that were the case, I would always feel that my life is on the, the precipice of this road that I can't see. Did I do it good enough? And God, who is compassionate and has perfect love, would never, ever want us to live a life of religion where we just hope for the best and we're not going to find out until we're standing there in front of him. What a crummy God he would be. What a crummy father he would be. Rather, he says, let me give you confidence that you can find your name in the book of life, the Lamb's book of life, and that confidence comes 
not because of what we did, but because of what Christ did for us. It is not what we do, it's what's been done. You see, Christ came and he understood that every single one of us was captive in sin, bonded to sin, that there was no way that any of us, like gravity, could overcome sin. And because of compassion, he says, I know you're lost, and that's why I've come to seek you, and I will pay the penalty for you. I will lay my life down on a cross. I will shed the blood of an innocent life, Christ, this, the, the perfect lamb of God, And if you will only reach out to me by faith and say, Christ, I accept exclusively your your sacrifice for me, that I might receive you and into my life and take my old life and exchange it for your new one in me. And I accept what you have done, not what I will do. And I take that and I say, Christ, only by the precious blood of the Lamb will my soul be cleansed. And in that moment of faith, not because of what you do, but because of the faith that you put in Christ, your name automatically and eternally goes into the Lamb's book of life. It is fantastic news. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Maybe you sit here today and when you read these words and you read about the Lamb's book of life, there's something primal in you that says, "Uh uh-oh, uh-oh. That happened for me in 1979 and 1980 and 1981. I was living this, uh-oh. I'm not in sync with God. And on May 2nd, 1981, I gave my heart, my life, my faith to Christ. And maybe today you would say, man, I I want to be settled with God. Now we move on. We could spend all day on that. We can move on. And even though that's heavy, before we move on, let me just say there's great news. And there's respectfully said there's not a religion in the world that can offer you confidence in your eternity with God. There's not, because it doesn't exist. And the reason it doesn't exist, that there's no religion except, no faith except Christianity that offers the answer to the sin problem, to the soul sin problem. Only Christ, there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. And that is good news. Some people say, well, that's narrow-minded. No, that's simplicity. You know, I go to Cheesecake Factory, open the thing, and I'm like, dude, that just, it just frustrates me. I wish they just had like a, you know, a piece of chicken, a burger, and kale. Either of those three choices. I'd be happy. You open the thing, you don't know what, you know, you want me to come back in a minute? No, come back in an hour, because, you know, it's going to take me a while to get through this. See, God is so compassionate. He said, let me make this simple for you. There's one Savior. There's one way to God. I'm not being narrow-minded. God said, let me make it simple for you. I don't want to confuse you. I don't want you to wonder what is on the tip end of that, that steep cliff. I want you to have confidence so that we can build this relationship. That's the, that's the God of the Bible. He's not mean. He's not wanting you to, to screw up. He is wanting you to have a relationship with him. Now, for those of us that have a relationship, we have 
another destination, another destination before God. And this is going to be the basis of our entire conversation. And I'm, I know that for some of you, like, wow, this is, this is, you know, a new dimension in the Scripture. But I will propose to you that as believers in Christ, it's critical that we understand it. And you'll see that Paul, he just, he urged people in, in what we're about to talk about. You see, when I, when we look in Romans chapter 14 and verse 10, we read this statement, and you have to read things in the context of the Scripture. Paul wrote to the Romans. He's writing to other believers. He's not writing to unbelievers, and he says this. We, he includes himself. When we say we went to the game, that included me, not y'all. That's, uh, that's uh, Southern. We will all stand before God's judgment seat. Now, if you're like me, you're like, hey, wait a minute. I thought we just read that that's, that's going to be for those that don't know Christ. Different intersection. Saying, as believers, we all will stand before God's judgment seat. Every single one of us as Christians will give an account of himself to God. Now, you're going to hear me say something over and over so that I make sure you understand it. You know what they say, you only, uh, you only um, remember uh, 20% of what you hear. Have you heard that before? 20% of what you hear. That's not super encouraging to a, to a public speaker, to be honest with you. That means you're only going to remember two out of 10 things that I'm saying this morning. So I'm going to say this thing over and over and over. What we're talking about here, your eternal destination is not in the balance if you are a believer of Christ. When we read in the scriptures that we will give an account of himself or herself to God, we're not, God is not weighing this account to say, hmm, heaven or hell, heaven or hell. That has been settled forever. In fact, I'm going to go back to Romans chapter 8 and verse 1. For believers, this is the confidence that we have as we crest the hill. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 1, because of what Christ did, it's the small words in the scripture that are powerful. There is now, now, no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Why now? For what Christ did, and we've accepted his sacrifice, now there's no condemnation. So when we're looking at Romans chapter 14 and we're giving an account of ourselves, I'm going to say it again, not, not heaven or hell, okay? So Paul begins to speak about this judgment seat of Christ, which sounds pretty heavy, right? Uh, like if you say, hey, what are you doing next Thursday? Oh, I'm going to go to a movie. Oh, that's fun, right? You're automatically like, hey, that's fun. Uh, what are you going to do after church? I'm going to get some ice cream. Cool, that's, that's fun. Hey, what are you doing next Friday? I'm going to a judgment Okay, that doesn't sound fun. That sounds heavy. But let me just tell you that it is an assessment, okay? So here we go. Here's our key verse. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. Paul says it again. For we, all of us, must, not an option, all of us, appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him or her for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Now, for those of you that want to 
I'm going to go boring here for about two minutes, all right? So whatever you, if you want to think about, you know, what you're having for lunch, good time right here. Um, I'm going to look at the original Greek here for a second because you'll see it, it matters, all right? So here's how, you know, we, we study the Greek, on, you know, on our Bible software. If we can go to the next uh, screen here, it's a picture. Yep. And so when you look on the right column, it says, and, you know, when you are translating languages, sometimes the word order is different, but literally it says, all we appeared, be revealed, must before the judgment seat of Christ that we might receive each thing done through the body, right? When you look at the word revealed, on the, on the left side, that is the original language, okay? It comes from a base word called phanero, or uh, uh, the word is phanero, which means Turn inside out. Turned inside out. Revealed. When we are going to appear before Christ, there's going to be, all of us are going to be turned inside out. You know, it's like what we tell our kids. They've been out, you know, we did the pumpkin patch thing yesterday, and they come and they got hay all over them. We're like, hey, turn your socks inside out, right? We want to get all that junk out. You know, when you turn your socks inside out, it's like, ew, they're stuck, you know. We're going to turn ourselves inside. Christ is going to say, nothing will be hidden. All will be exposed. Our motives, why we did what we did, those things that, you know, even I've been married almost 22 years. My wife still doesn't know all about me profoundly, my thoughts, what makes, you know, I mean, she knows a lot, but not like God does. We're going to be turned inside out. Now watch. So we all are going to be turned inside out, appeared before the judgment seat. Now here's where I want to park it. You see on the left, the word is bimatos, which is bima, that's the core word. Now, when you look at that word, you think, okay, that's cool. It's in Greek. That's pretty heavy. Uh, Wow, you're really intelligent because you can look at Greek. Not the case. The word bima was a common word in their day as the word Olympics would be today, okay? Paul writes to the Corinthians in this context that we're reading this, and right outside that city of Corinth, they ran what was called the Isthmian Games, And the Isthmian Games were exactly like the Olympics. And like the Olympics, and there was a lot of track and field stuff going on, and at the end of a a race or an event, they would come before what's called the Bema Seat. And it's no different than when we see at the end of Olympics, you got bronze and silver and gold. And the only reason that people are standing there to, to have received bronze and silver and gold is that there has been a judge. And that judge has assessed all the runners and say, now it's time to reward you here because we've assessed, we've judged you at the Bema seat. So when Paul said it's like the Bema seat, everybody like, oh, I get it. The problem for us is that we've been removed from that culture for 2,000 years and we're not quite sure what Bema, you know, what is, where does is the word Bema mean? I thought, you know, at first maybe it's the Italian version of Star Trek, like a Bema, you a up a Scotty. I know that's really bad. And yet I find it humorous. Yeah, so it would be like saying, hey, uh, you know, the Olympic Games. And everybody were like, oh, I get it, all right? Now, let's put that in context. What Paul is saying over and over through the New Testament is that we will stand before Christ as believers, not with heaven or hell, our eternal salvation in the balance. It's settled. There is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. That holds through eternity. 
But now Christ is going to look as believers at how we ran the race, not whether we were good or bad or were on Santa's naughty list, but how we ran the race. Did we lay it down? Did we run with passion? Because Christ can't wait to reward and say, well done, my good and faithful son. That's what happens. That is the voice of the Bema seat. Don't you remember the, uh, the, the uh, parable of the talents where Christ came and said, uh, there was a guy with an empty hand. He was like, ah, man. You see, Paul, as we'll see in the future, says, look, even if you show up empty-handed, you'll be saved. You'll be saved. And some of you, oh, cool. That's all I want. It's not. As we unfold it, you're going to see. Do you remember at the end? I'll just give you a little snip of the future here. You remember at the end of the talents, uh, the parable of the talents when the guy came and said, hey, look, I have multiplied it. And Christ said, yeah. He said, well done, good, faithful servant. But he said something else. I'm going to put you in charge of many cities. What does that mean? I don't know, but I want to part. What we do, how we run the race here on earth is directly going to impact what happens in eternity. See, there's going to be some that Christ turns to and says, saddle up, boys. It's time to ride. Anybody want to be on that horse? I do. But more than that, we want to offer to Christ this, this sense of like, I, God, I want to please you. I want to bring my life to you as a, as a sacrifice to say thank you for what you did for me. This is the beam of seed of Christ. You see, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5, Paul says, the Lord will bring to light what is hidden in darkness. All right, so just so you get it again, we remember 20% of what we hear 30% of what we see and hear, 40% are what we, what we see, 40% of what we see and hear. So just want to throw this up, you know, before you, the next, if we can go to the next slide, uh, this is not about your salvation. So I just want to reiterate that. So now, now you got a four in 10 chance of remembering that. <laughs> it's not about your salvation. It's about much before. Now, on my top reading list, if someone were to say, hey, where, where are your top five books? The one I'm, I'm about to share with you would be on my top five. It's written by a man named Erwin Lutzer, who's been the pastor of the Moody Church in Chicago for many, many years. I, like to, I gravitate toward those preachers and teachers of the faith who are so solid in the mainstream, because when you get on these kind of conversations, you can find wackadoodle on both sides. So Erwin Lutzer is such a solid Bible teacher. The name of the book is called Your Eternal Reward. Okay, so if, if anybody wants to study more about the Bema Seed, it's well-written, it's not super heady, and uh, it, it is just a great read. Erwin Lutzer says these words. Listen and watch carefully. Our works before conversion are, not, are of not merit in the sight of God. In other words, great, you're a nice person, but that's not, that does not get your name in the book of life. That does not get you into heaven just because before you were converted, you, you had good works. But works done after we have received the gift of salvation matter. We will not be judged on what we did from the time of our first birth when we were babies, but on what we did since our 
second birth when we became followers of Christ. Let me tell you as we kick this off why I think this conversation is important. It's important because I think we live differently when we know we're going to be examined. Let me give you a couple uh, instances. Um, is there anyone here that brushes their teeth a little bit stronger and more on the morning they go to the dentist? In fact, my teeth have never been so clean. But, you know, the problem is then you walk in, you're, you know, you got blood running down your gums because, you know, you're a little more vigorous than normal. My wife fixes her hair before she goes to the hairstylist. I'm like, that's crazy. Who, who, like me, loses weight before your doctor's appointment, your annual visit? You're like, hey, I got that visit coming up. I better lose and drop some pounds so they won't tell me my blood pressure is high, right? Anybody? One person. That's all I'm looking for. One person does that. Yes, thank you, ma'am. Thank you. That's awesome. Feeling pretty good. I, I taught piano lessons for years. I, I, if I had a dollar for every time, you know, mom came and said, hey, Johnny's going to stop piano lessons, but he's going to study on his own. Not on your life, he's not. Because when you go to a piano lesson, it's not that you've only come to learn, but you've come to show. You've come to show what you did this past week. And when there's no date on the schedule to show that you're going to be examined, let me assess how it went last week, Johnny. Guess what? Johnny don't practice. So the conversation that we're having right now is, is critical for us as believers because some people have this kind of crazy idea, like, hey, I'm just going to die, and I'm going to sit on a cloud and play a little harp. That's going to be pr pretty cool. Some of you are hoping it's an electric harp. You know, you're going to be like jamming on a harp or something. But, you know, it, it's so, it's so that's, too, that's too simpleton. It's much more complex than that. And Christ is going to have so much for us to do. And so it matters how we live our lives here. It matters that we're being examined. So for that reason, I'm looking in Colossians chapter 3, verse 2. It's almost as if you have to, what I call, have a look, kind of a look behind mentality. That you're looking back as if you are already standing before Christ. If you, if you already say, man, I, you know, I've got to, I'm going to the dentist next week. And if you're, just imagine yourself sitting there. You may start brushing and flossing now. If you were to, to try to kind of set your, your, your compass on the fact that, hey, I got a dentist appointment or I got the prom or I got my wedding coming up or whatever that thing is that causes the prep to be different, if you can already stand there in your mind and look back, then this part of your life will be different. It matters how we live our life if we set our minds on things above. Watch Colossians 3, 2. Set your minds ratchet it in, stick it in gear on things above, not on earthly things. You see, for you're already saved. You died. Your life was hidden with Christ. But you see, who, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Paul's saying, live like that. Live in that moment when Christ is going to come back. Now, my mom is here this morning. She can attest to this story. When I was a teenager... We went to, I uh, used to call it the drugstore. We call it the pharmacy now. And my mom was, you know, over in the cosmetic section doing something. And, and I said, hey, mom, I'm going to go over here to the magazine section. 
and I added to my resume something new that day, shoplifter. And so I uh, took that magazine that I wanted and I slipped it into my jacket. And I went over to my mom with something lame, you know, like, hey, mom, I'm kind of getting tired. I think I'll head out to the car. My mom, okay, sounds good. Weird, but good. All right, go ahead. I walk out to the car. I'm walking to the car. I'm right here to the door of the store. I feel a hand on my shoulder. It's the manager. It's been decades, and I still feel it. I feel what that was like, the blood rushing out of my head. I cried with the manager there. I melted. I begged him, please, 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 please. I swear I'll never do it again. I swear that I'll never even come in your store again. Please, please, please. You know what he said to me? Is that your mom in the cosmetic section? Mm-hmm. Okay, let's go to my office, and I'll go get your mom. Oh, boy. You see, I got to the office, and I thought it was bad, but it got worse, because my mom uttered these words that you never want to hear as a kid. Wait till your father gets home. What I failed to recognize is that I was being examined, but I couldn't see it. I didn't know that the manager had his eye out. Probably back in that day, they had a camera even. He knew where I was. He knew where my mom was, and I was inside out in that moment, revealed. And because of that, had I known, listen, had I known that I had been was being watched, my behavior would have been directly impacted. You get it? This conversation matters not to make us scared, but to make us passionate that we will stand before Christ and say, Christ, I ran the race because I knew I was going to be here. There was no guesswork as if I were going to stand before Christ or not. And we don't compete with anybody else comma, thank God. Can you imagine paging Billy Graham and Steve McCoy? Oh, no. <laughs> oh, good grief. They did it in pairs like the ark. <laughs> and if I get up there with Billy Graham, I'm like, hey, I'm going first, dude. All right? <laughs> I don't want to follow him. First John 2, 28. And now, dear children... Continue in him. Run the race so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. John Wesley said these words. He said, I value all things only by the price they shall gain in eternity. Let me read it again. I value all things only by the price they shall gain in eternity. You see, Paul says, let me, 
Let me give you some context of what we read before in 2 Corinthians 5.10. Let me give, give you the verse before. This is Paul's motivation, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 9. So we make it our goal to please Christ, to please him, whether we are at home in the body right here or we're away from it, the two are not different. For we must all appear before the bema seat of Christ that each one may receive what is due to him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. And since then, since because of all this, we know that what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade men. This is exactly what I'm doing this morning. I'm persuading you. I'm persuading you, bring a jacket. Bring a jacket, because the weather is a plumb line. Persuade men. Now watch this. I, I read this verse, I bet, 50 times this week. What we are is plain to God. Like, wow, man. What we are is plain to God. No fooling around, man not playing church. What we are is plain to God. And then he says, and I hope it's also plain to your conscience. Erwin Lutzer says these words, your life here will impact your life there forever. If the knowledge that we will give account to Christ for the deeds done in the body, whether good or bad, 2 Corinthians 5, does not motivate us to faithful living, it is quite possible that nothing else will. So in California, let me just kind of close with this, this past week. And um, almost 11 years ago, we, we, we planted this church. We had, my wife and I, had, there were six other people in our living room, eight people. And we began by reading this book together called Unstoppable Force by a pastor uh, named Erwin uh, McManus. He's the pastor of a church in Los Angeles called Mosaic. And when you plan a church, if you've ever started a business, you know that those early years are sometimes the most difficult years. And when, we, when you plan a church, you do sometimes feel like dances with wolves, that you're out there in the wilderness. And Irwin became kind of a long-distance pastor to us, not personally, just through his podcast and reading his books, and just made an incredible impact on the beginning of our church. And I've listened to him quite frequently since then, and I've always won at 60 seconds, just 60 seconds where I could somehow, don't even know how that would happen, to stand before him and say, hey, you know, thank you. You were the, you were the lifeline. You have people that in your, probably in your life, someone you'd love to go back to and say, hey, you have no idea, right? So we went to uh, Los Angeles, and uh, we, Carrie and I, my wife, went on Saturday night, Saturday, and because we had to set up for the conference on Sunday, and we said, hey, you know what? We're about an hour away from Mosaic. Let's, let's go. And uh, we'll hope that Irwin is speaking that day. If he's not, that's cool. We just kind of want to see the church. And so we went, and not only was he speaking, but he was launching his new book, and uh, he was speaking on that, that, that last Sunday. So it was a real treat for us. I like to get to places early, so we got there about an hour early because I didn't know the parking and everything, met one of their pastors. He said, hey, let's go across the street and have coffee. It was really, really cool. His latest book, which could be his last book, 
It's called the last arrow. As Irwin has been diagnosed with advanced cancer. He's had some intense surgeries. Uh, he's about my age, about 60. Uh, and uh, I got to tell you, it was as if it was his last message because he preached and spoke with more power and passion than I have ever heard him speak in 10 years, 11 years of listening to him. See, The Last Arrow is a book about if you shoot the arrow, shoot it like it's the only one you got. And so this, the message came. They were doing baptisms that day after their second service, which started at 12 o'clock, would have been finished at 2. We went to the first service. And their baptisms are, baptismals are set up identical to this, just kind of a plain black tub outside on the corner of Hollywood Boulevard. Cars just thick like a beehive all around. And man, they got two baptismals out there to do baptisms. And the, God, and the power of God was moving so much. I mean, it was just tangible that he said, man, I can't wait to do baptisms. There are people here that are living their life unsurrendered to Christ. And he called people to baptism right then. Last Sunday, 129 people got baptized throughout all their services. We went outside and we're like, hey, let's want to be part of this. Let's, let's watch. Let's stand in the crowd and watch and as it, and so hundreds of people waiting for the baptismal candidates to come out, and et cetera, and, and uh, Irwin comes, and he stands as close right there to the guitar, and, and nobody's talking to him. I'm like, this is my 60 seconds, right here. And I turned to Carrie and said, hey, I'm going to go talk to him. She goes, you are? I'm like, yeah, the guy's not Jesus or anything. I'm not going <laughs> to fall at his feet. I'm like, hey, let's go. I went up to him, and I said, hey, you know, we were both kind of weepy. I just want to let you know, I've waited 10 years to tell you something, and you don't know me, so I know this is really weird, but 10 years ago, 11 years ago, we sat in a living room with eight people and read your book chapter by chapter, and it inspired us to start a church that's now six or 700 people. And um, I think she asked, he asked, he was so warm and, and inviting, he asked Carrie, hey, so where are you guys from? And her answer was... <laughs> That's all I should say. I'm like, I'll take it. <laughs> and uh, I took him by the shoulders. And I looked him in the eye and I said, I just want to thank you. Because you have no idea uh, what you've meant to us and what impact you've had. And I gave him a very extended long hug. You see, there's some of us that say we can't wait for heaven. Let me tell you this. Heaven can't wait for you either. Christ is so waiting to take you by the shoulders and say, hey, way to go. Well done. Good and faithful servant. That's the Bema seat, see? Way to go. Look us right in the eye. You see, here's how the Bible ends. Here's what Jesus says at the end of the Bible. Behold, I'm coming quickly. Live your life as if I'm coming at, at noon. And my reward is with me to give to every man according to what he has done. 
What we do in this life directly impacts the next life because there's a Savior waiting for us who wants to embrace us and to hold us and to say into our ear, way to go, way to go. So run the race as if it's your last lap. And Christ will be pleased at the beam seat of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for the reality of coming face to face with you. It's a reality, God, that, that you want us to have confidence in. Not to be trembling, but to have confidence, to have an eagerness. We can't wait, just like those in the parable of the town, that, the guys that doubled, they couldn't wait to go and show the master. I'm praying, God, you know my heart. I've been praying. I'm praying, God, for believers to, to, to set their minds. That's it. To live a look-behind life to envision standing before Christ. God, help us not just to brush our teeth on the night before. God, because we don't know when the night, the day is, so help us to, to stand right now in our minds before Christ and ask ourselves, will Christ be pleased? Will he say, well done? It matters, God. It matters. So I'm praying for believers right now, Father, sitting in this room, for divine recalibration. That if there needs to be another gear, God, help there be a commitment right now. God, I give you, I give you my life again. I lay it down again. I'm taking it from my current gear. I'm taking it up right now, God. I commit to you to run faster, to run harder. Before we leave, God, I'd, I'd be remiss if I didn't to speak to the heart of those who have that, that primal gut feeling like, oh, no, when it comes to the great white throne, the book of life, the stark reality. That they realize in that moment when the word of God, which is powerful, it's not, they're not just words, they're the words of God. And when they come to, to life and they, they, they saw them earlier, there was, a, there was this sense of un, being unsettled. And because if they ask the, the question, am I in the book of life? If it's either no or I don't know, there's no, there's no confidence. So before we leave today, as believers, we're praying for you because we love you as God loves you. And so I'm engaging believers to pray passionately right now for those sitting right here in our room who have not settled their relationship with God. They couldn't say with confidence, yes, my name is in the book of life. Who have never come to Christ and said, I commit my life to you, God, and 
I want to follow you and, and I want to accept your offer of pure grace and love and take on Christ in my life, accepting forgiveness from him, receiving it. And so with courage and humility, as we're in prayer from time to time, we say, hey, this is, this is a moment to respond and not get, walk out and get caught up in the activities of the day. Who here in this room would privately just, with all of our heads bowed, I'm looking here in this room before God that you would raise your hand. I won't point you out, wouldn't embarrass you for anything. Who would raise your hand and say, I want Christ today for the first time. We had several people in our first service who said, I want Christ. Who, who here today would raise their hand and say, God, I want my name to be in the book of life. I want to have the confidence that the gap between me and God is settled. Is there anyone in this room that would raise their hand? Well, just wait momentarily. It's a very private moment. It's a very sacred moment. Anyone who would raise their hand to say, I want Jesus today. I want the gap to be settled. Thank you. Thank you for that. Thanks for the humility. Anyone else? This is not awkward. Some people think it's awkward. It's definitely not awkward. We're just relaxed and just before God. And you may just be taking inventory. Is there anyone that would would join this this other that to say yes today I want Christ we're so grateful God for who you are thank you for this this one not just a human being but this one soul God who said today I want Christ thank you God for those Christians in the room who said God I got it in first gear man I I, I want to move it thank you God thanks for being so gracious to us to move in our midst, to bring us closer to you, to walk passionately with you. God, thank you for the movement of your spirit. And as we end today, God, we're grateful that Christ is coming. And like John said, we will say, oh God, come quickly. Come quickly. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.